Okay, so we have to start this podcast off, right? Okay, right. so it was the best of podcasts. <laughs> it was the worst of podcasts. It definitely was the worst of podcasts. Um, Great. Welcome to so, Go Right Yourself. The only podcast dedicated to telling you to get off your lazy butt and stop listening to this podcast and go right yourself. yourself. That was a spontaneously good way to start a podcast that you came up with. I'd say so. On our first, was it our first or second episode? Welcome to your Go Right Yourself. Oh, what? When I was doing the little uh, Wayne's World jam. That was good as well. Oh, you know, yeah. If you've not heard it, you should go back and listen to it. So one of the things I wanted to cover on this show was... Because the, openings are so important when you're writing something. Yeah. No matter what and, it is. And it was so profound to me because once, I don't know how long ago this was, I was in a bookshop and I picked up a book and I read the first page and I went, oh my God, this is, it was disturbing because it was so good that it made me question whether most of the novels I'd read that I thought were good were actually, it gave me, Ooh, it gave me a that. moment of existential crisis. Yes. And, and I think I'll read it, but I might read it. Bit later in the show. I love that feeling. That yeah, is, I, that is spectacular. Yeah, that's a good. Uh, sus- that's a good open with some suspense. When know? something can like hit you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I so it was in my mind to do a reading to to read the first page of that mm-hmm. book, but I thought we could speak about openings in general because well, it's a good. Part. Now I'm like curious. Like, uh, well, what was the book? And that we can talk about openings in general. But what was the book that you? Uh... The book was The Earl King by Michael Tournier who is a French and German author, uh, which I think maybe gave him a wider perspective because being able to speak and write in three languages probably would do that. It was named after the famous poem, The Earl King by Goethe, Germany's great poet. And uh, I guess I'll read it later on in the show because I think while we're doing a show on good openings, one thing that you might find makes your opening page good is leaving something to suspense in there that uh, leads people to think that there's something they're going to find out later. Yes, I wanted to do this. Uh, this is a great uh, thing to give to people because uh, I was actually talking about this earlier today with a, a group of Dungeon Masters. And Dungeon Masters are writers too. They definitely are. Involves a lot of writing and fictional planning. Yes, uh, narrative planning definitely. Um, and what we were talking about is because we're building... We're, we're building a world, probably the four of us together, uh, that like uh, for our weekly kind of uh, D&D group where the, uh, it used to just be for beginners and like little little one-shots, little one-shot adventures that lasted a night. And bam, was... bam, thank you, man. Yes, sir. Yeah. You know. You Dungeons and Dragons slots here. Dungeons and Dragons. One, one night stands. stands. Nice. We were doing that until uh, the people that kept coming back to the night, uh, we felt like they wanted something more continuous Mm -hmm. and uh, something that built on itself. So as we're kind of like creating this world to like introduce them to, uh, what we thought about for the opening was doing something that was like easy and digestible and, uh, you know, rather simple for for the beginning as we Mm -hmm. introduce Mm -hmm. them to the greater world. But what I kept demanding was like having having a seed of something. Like you can go on like a little regular adventure, 
but there should be something mysterious and something something that grabs you that like you mm-hmm. won't find out the answer to until like yes three exactly. months later yeah and, and i think that a good piece is something that is eminent which means that everything within it refers to everything else just as when you write a good essay you should always be coming back to your main theme mm. when you write a good short story um every the the, the the beginning is so important well in a short story every sentence is important so there should be a consistency and like when you're writing a novel i think it's very satisfying there's something's going on from the very first page that you know when they say write an essay tell them what you're going to tell them tell them then tell them what you've told them in the same way there should be the seed of the oak in the first page and one of the th- reasons why i think that tv programming has got so bad is because yeah, give us your hot take because they're passing it from writer to writer and they're opening storylines as they go while they close storylines because the idea is to get people to keep watching and it's good to get people to keep watching but what it means is when they open a storyline they don't already have the end of that storyline planned right mm. so the great thing with writing a, a, a screenplay that for a movie as opposed to something that's going to go over mm. three to who knows how many seasons is you can go back and foreshadow everything that happens in the end starting on the first page you can put little nuggets and clues and something that refers to the end of the first page definitely and i think the problem you're referring to is uh is a big problem where uh people tend to write in arcs mm-hmm. now instead of uh kind of like this expansion mm. kind of idea mm. where like you'll have like a, a, a tiny group of show creators at the beginning of like a, a tv show that will like come up with the whole season arc and you'll get it right. throughout the episode and like that will make it feel like it's tied mm. together mm. but like what and but like everybody will be doing individual things in the middle yeah but what you're talking about and i think the idea that you come across that works in essays as well as it does in tv shows is your seed expands and grows and is like unfolded with exactly everything else that comes like from episode to episode and, and it should be consistent because something that starts out as an acorn doesn't become like another kind of tree that's not you know a, yeah yeah a, a you don't get tree five becomes different a pumpkin, trees yeah a tree you know when you a start tree what you know, <laughs> you know it's what, halloween folks a pumpkin seed does not become a pumpkin tree. I think what I said was actually correct. Oh, fair enough. Yeah. It was completely <laughs> fucking banal as well. <laughs> but, um, what, what I mean, yeah, so the thing is with this thing of, oh, we'll open up a plot line here and we'll pass it to another writer and they'll, that's why so many of these shows, when they end, you mm. feel robbed because people at, opened a bunch of storylines and they didn't know how they were going to close them and they, they assumed someone else would do yes. something interesting with them later. And no one could think of anything that good to do with them. Yes. So be the lotus flower. Correct. Unfold the petals. Right. Expand. Don't don't write in lines. Mm. Uh, write three dimensionally. Mm. Um, so I was thinking if I had any advice for writing an opening page, and I didn't. So I thought it would be really good to look at some of the famous opening lines of all time, and then discuss each of them and tell people what we like about them and why we think they work and then we'll go to some more contemporary things after the famous ones so let's start with a tale of two cities because everybody knows it it is the most famous one so do you want to do it 
Uh, sure. Yeah, I'll do it. Uh, it was the best of times. <laughs> no, I'll, I'll do the first one. You do the second. Oh wait, one. you want to do like what? Like that, one, uh, one me, one yeah. you. All right, yeah, yeah, hit it. That works. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was the epoch of belief. It was the epoch of incredulity. It was the season of light. It was the season of darkness. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. What does it mean? Yes, right? That's kind of ironic because I feel like you get the positive lines and I get the negative lines. And, well, and you say I'm the more negative one. Yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, this is interesting, but so, so, so what do we get here? Uh, I think we get uh, what we've noticed. I think it was good for both of us to split it up in that way yeah. because what, what we see, the very first thing he gives you is a duality right. in the, the tale of two And cities. it makes you want to know how it can be these two contradictory things at, at the same time. At the same time. Well, yes. the, as the, the, the laws of logic dictate, uh, one thing can't be two different things in the same way at the same time. Unless That's you're thinking the, dialectically. Yes, well, I mean, that was Aristotle. So in that way... The way the way it's these two different things is because it's a tale of two cities. Oh my gosh! In one city, all this good shit's happening, and in the other one, well, I mean, they just want to die or something like that. Yeah. So, or anything. something. Nobody really knows. Nobody's really read Tale of Two Cities. <laughs> I was I was going to go wait a minute. I have, and then I realized no, I yeah. downloaded the audiobook and then I didn't listen to it. Oh my god! But I do like Dickens. Although I disagree, well, okay, we can we can actually do a whole. Talk about your opinions on Dickens, yes, your like, Dickens opinions. My Dickens, what the Dickens? What the Dickens? I like that idiom. Yes. So, okay, let's. Uh, how about Pride and Prejudice? Uh, well, yeah, okay, yeah. What's what's with Pride? And Prejudice? I really like the opening to Pride and Prejudice. Um, I I think because she's got so much humor in the beginning in the first chapter, yeah, and she sets up the the relationship between the husband and wife where mm. he's like oh yes dear and she's like oh you've got to you've got to come to this meeting and she's really excited and he's like yep whatever but you're like yep prick like but you know there, there's some well you said you were a big fan of jane austen well i mean she's well known for um all the characters are always driven by something she's always like what is the motivation of this character what is the motivation of this character mm. and i think she's she writes great characters and she's a beautiful writer and a great obviously a great novelist and that's why she's enduringly popular and i don't i think that the even she's been well depicted in movies when i when i watched the wothering heights movies i was uh, scared uh, scared that they'd ruined the book and in a way I, I was Bronte. Um, yeah, Emily Bronte. I was wor I felt like, oh, I ruined the book by watching the movie first. Whereas I started started reading Pride and Prejudice first and, and watching the movies I didn't think it would necessarily ruin them for you, but whet your appetite. Anyway, but um I think the to start with the first line, it is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. <laughs> and that's the, the first line. And it's good because it's a little bit ironic and it's good humor. She's, and, and she knows she's kind of like prodding you to go, wait, is that, is that universally acknowledged? Do I acknowledge it? Because if I don't acknowledge it, then it's not universally acknowledged. Yes. But you kind of go, well, you tell me what you think. Well, it you does. It sets up the whole thing it. for being, uh, for being about relationships. And it does strike straight to the theme. You're right about that. Yes, and it does. It does 
set up that kind of uh, antagonist of uh, money versus love uh, that we see in, mm -hmm. in Pride and Prejudice, mm -hmm. like career versus, you know, uh, or professionalism versus like an mm -hmm. emotional uh, uh, desire. And so like poking at something, they're going, look, you've got the land and you've got the money. What do you want next? Well, yeah. you're going to want a bitch, aren't you? I don't know if Jane Austen said that, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, well, that's the idea. It's like Freud said, work and love, love and work, that's all there is. The song Summertime goes, your daddy's rich and your mum's good looking. It's basically the, the two primary drives, uh, survival and security as measured by wealth and reproductibility as... Um, Right, we've, we've yeah. brought up Maslow's hierarchy of needs right. before, I think, mm -hmm. yes. So, um, another, so were you going to say more about that? Uh, no, go on. Well, another title that goes straight to the theme of the book, I think, is The Great Gatsby. Um, in my younger and more vulnerable years, in my younger and more vulnerable years, oh, yes. my father gave me some advice that I've been turning over in my mind ever since. And, and that's good, because uh, you want to know what the advice is. Yes, you want to know what the advice is, and you know that he's setting it up for, like, he, he's established his, his protagonist so well uh -huh. that, like, you you understand that this is a man that looks up to other people. Right. That, like, he's still in his youth, and mm -hmm. he's, like, off to adventure and, like, discover himself, but he's also unsure of his own footing. So, like, you get this, you get this, you get two things about this character instantly that like he's he's out he's striking it out on his own but he's not quite there yet to right. like to 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 in, like to really enforce his will on the world and i, I get you found so much meaning in that and i love that i do love the I, great gatsby me too and i think people don't actually understand how great the great gatsby is when i speak to them it's really great it's, it's amazing to me that people can miss the fact that the whole thing now this is going to be a spoiler alert so i definitely suggest you skip a couple of minute, minutes because the whole story is about when should you stop being non-judgmental mm. because if you think about that now i'm going to ruin the end here but they don't put it in the movie this, this book has one of the best endings oh, amazing. as well that i'm because sure everyone has heard because 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 they don't put the the ending is so fucking sophisticated that they took it out of the movies right wait do they not do they not have the the, the green light at the end of daisy's dot i i i'm, I'm i never went to that. saw the movie i'm, I'm just actually, a big fan of the meme i i'm i'm what i'm thinking of is at the end of the book tom one of the main characters Right, by the way, you need to know the advice that his dad gave him. His dad gave him the advice, before you judge anyone, just remember that they don't have the same advantages as you do. Yes, because he comes from a wealthy family. So he took that into his heart, and he always tried to be non-judgmental. Now, the really annoying thing is, people are so thick today, that if you go on the, inter <laughs> if you go on the internet, yeah. there'll be, be people saying, oh, Nick's actually really judgmental, he just thinks he's non-judgmental. And mm. they completely missed the point of the Great Gatsby and wherever they got that idea from their postmodern English teacher in uni or whatever, that guy should be fired, right? <laughs> the whole You so, know, sometimes they haven't done the reading like I used to do. So the question is, so what happens there at the end, spoilers, is one of the characters, Tom, tries to shake Nick's hands. And Nick doesn't want to shake his hand. And he goes, uh, mm, oh. And then he goes... 
Well, I sh- shook his hand in the end, and then I and then I left, and I left them all to their careless world. And for years, I would turn it into over my head how amazing an idea that is to end a book with. I didn't want to shake his hand, but I also didn't want to make a scene, so I just shook his hand to avoid causing a scene, and then I felt bad about it. But the point is, Nick, this non-judgmental person was trying to assess in his life when you actually should judge and go, no, you guys are a bunch of assholes and you're irresponsible and people have died because of your carelessness, etc., etc. Mm. And that's why, I guess, he put his mate ties into what I was saying yes. before about having yeah. the seed turn into a tree. He had that, he's already telling you. That was his whole character arc uh-huh. in that first sentence. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. I've been wanting to speak about that publicly for like freaking years because I just think. Well, I mean, here's your soapbox. Here we so go. I soapboxed it at last. Yes. So, if you wanted to. Um, Which one should we do next? I think because. Uh, well, we have we a, have a couple lined up here. This is a, um, on, um, a remarkable one. I can just say quickly. 1984. It was a bright cold day in April, and the clocks were striking 13. Just because you go, what? Wait, what? Wait, yeah, what? That, that's true. You, you do like, yeah, that, so you, it's that second look. You said you had uh, the, the, the book in Sergio Slaughterhouse 5 and it started. All this happened, more or less. Kurt Vonnegut did say, uh, in, to, to bring it back to your Jane Austen idea, that uh, like he did talk a lot about character motivation. I mm-hmm. think Kurt, uh, Vonnegut was a big fan of... Uh, of Jane Austen, and he said that like it's important from the very beginning, the very first sentence of your book, to say uh, to have your character want something, oh. even if it was just a glass of water. That was his famous line: is that like your your character has to want something right from the get go, or else it's pointless. Now here's a contemporary book, reasonably contemporary. It came out quite a while ago now. Um, but the book thief, I did read it, and it has got a good opening line. Here is a small fact: you are going to die. <laughs> and the person, the friend that bought it for me, bought it because he said I was more interested in the way that the book is written mm. than the the storyline itself. Um, and it uses some interesting devices. Um, well, I we, think that gives you that like little hold on, like wait, I know this, but like that's still kind of frightening kind mm. of idea so so it does catch you but it does it it is less uh kind of like about truth that like this i mean slaughterhouse five obviously like it, it confronts this idea of you know perception of of reality and like how you're going to like what is it that like maintains uh a, a, an ethical truth in society mm. uh whereas i mean the book thief is fun you, you read it as well? No, I haven't read it. Oh, okay. I'm just, aw- I'm just aware of it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Fahrenheit 451, such an amazingly written book, such a wonderful writer. Mm. I think it's because he was a writer first yeah. and a sci-fi author second. And sci-fi authors or dystopian authors are not, political authors are not known, best known for their literary style, more as conceptualists. But I think he was a real writer and his writer, writing is so rich. So that first line, it was a pleasure to burn again. Oh God, yeah. I think you want to know what a great opening line. I think you want to know. That's one of those ones that you can really feel. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yes. You go like, oh, I'm, I'm gripped for this. He's like, oh, and it, yes. It is a very gripping book. Yeah, I, I, I strongly recommend it. Yes. Um, I don't remember the first page, but speaking of sci-fi, a really good one is The Stars My Destination by Alfred Bester. I just remember, I've read oh, I haven't it heard once. Of this. Every single chapter has something incredibly amazing ha- happen and is gripping. Um, and I think it was very much because uh, it's partly based on the Count of Monte Cristo, but set in a sci-fi setting, which I thought was a really cool retelling of the Count of Monte Cristo. That's but cool it has premise. its own that original F. Um, oh yeah, that's that's it. It has got an amazing opening beginning because let me just see if I can find oh, it. Here's a good one while you're looking for it. Um, so William Gibson, uh, responsible for the creation of the Matrix, he was strongly influenced by Alfred Bester. Was he? Yeah. Oh, great! Yes. Yeah. yeah, exactly what I'm talking uh, about. Okay, but the uh, this is the opening line of Neuromancer, uh, probably his his uh, premier novel. Um, was the sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel, which for those of you who don't have cable TV anymore, which is most of us, um, you know that sort of like that poltergeist that uh, that uh, that sound of like just pure static and funny little gray dots that would come on your screen and just like you know sh- throughout it. Mm-hmm. Such an interesting. Because you get this this big dystopian idea in like like the color of the sky. I mean, living in Scotland, I'm sure we've all seen this before, but um, it's a it's a very good like way to fictionalize your world as well as it is create a relationship between uh, what you want to talk about, which is like technology and uh, the kind of set up a, a state of the of the world building that you're going to be doing. So Neuromancer is in the kind of cyberpunk genre, one of the... Oh, yeah, he's, uh, he's yeah. credited with creating right. cyberpunk. I love so William Gibson, the, I'm the sorry. Star, the, the Star is My Destination was like a proto-cyberpunk cyberpunk book. Oh, know, yeah. It, it, came out, it came out before that. Yeah. Um, this is what um, I'm interested in, because I've never yeah. heard of this guy. Oh, oh, 1956 the book came out, and wow. it was said to pre... Set up the set up the cyberpunk yes. genre. I think you'll freaking love it. Oh yeah. Anyway, the interesting thing about it is, I, I can't remember how the first page goes exactly, but like the Count of Monte Cristo, it's about a guy who's driven to cultivate himself, sh- sh- surely by seeking revenge. Right. Ah. His motivation is revenge. Revenge but, is such a but great. Ra- rather than this, this simple, polite, kind person that um, Edmond Dantes was in the Count of Monte Cristo, hmm. the protagonist in the stars of my destination is just this gutter snipe, trash, unsophisticated mind who's doing a menial job on a mining ship in space. But he he really cultivates himself, you know, he becomes uh, a noble, more or less. So it starts with something about how primitive his mind was and how little it was going on like how this consciousness was just beginning to arrive in his primitive mind mm. and it has this poem gully foil is my name and terror is my nation deep space is my dwelling place place and death's my destination which then later yeah. becomes the stars are my destination and you go okay so it begins with that that's very spooky mm. i like that a lot 
Ah. I think you'll def if you're a sci-fi fan and you're a William Gibson fan. This is good because I'm just I'm just finishing the book I have now, uh, and I'm looking for a new one. So that I think I will definitely pick that up. Um. So another another favorite of mine in the sci-fi genre, in fact, maybe my favorite novel ever, is Flowers for Algernon. Oh yeah. And that's that again. It starts in a diary telling. But he's writing like a small child because he is uh, mentally impaired. So he's so he's beginning with that, and again, it's got the seed because he's going to become intelligent over the course of the novel. He's going to get quote unquote intelligent. Yes. Yeah. 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 And so and so you, you it's going to develop, and you're going to see the the diary go from something that's written by a kid to something that's written by someone that's incredibly intelligent. So no it's a wonderful but... thing to be able to do with your writing style, by the way. It's to be to to be able to control your voice like that is that is, is a awesome. Huge talent, yes. I love that you pointed that out because I I wouldn't have thought to mention it, but it's a good word. So there's a few. We're probably about at the halfway point. There's a few more things we want to do. One is you're going to educate me and by extension our audience on great openings to screenplays. Not something I know that much about. Um, and and then I've got. Two readings. One is going to be from the Michael mysterious Jr. thing that you talked about at the yeah. beginning of the book. And the other is going to be from the beginning of my book, which I can't say is a great beginning, but I can at least. <laughs> I'm sure it'll become one of the great beginnings. I can at least talk about why I chose to do it that way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I think that's very good. So, when I was doing research on how to write a screenplay, uh, I, I came across a lot of information, but. Uh, Obviously, the one that's relevant to this conversation that we're having today is how to open your screenplay. Mm. Now, with uh, we've spoken a lot of, of, about uh, novels and uh, great works of literature that have opened with lines that talk a lot about uh, that that put their theme out there right in the very beginning, and that uh, kind of envelop the idea that they're going to unpack throughout the novel. Uh, and uh, basically, you have this the seed, right? Mm. Well, the idea is the same for a screenplay, except uh, you have to open with an image. Mm. So the difficulty here is that you're still writing, uh, but you're not writing for a person who's going to see your words, mm. or rather. There is a whole perspective on writing screenplays where you're only writing for one person, and that's, that's... the person who's going to commission it or not. Exactly. Right. But um, but when creating that piece of art, uh, you have to inspire him as well as you're going to inspire your audience. Uh, so when you do, uh, what's most important about writing a screenplay is opening on uh, a powerful image, uh, and probably one of the things. There's a lot of movies that do it really well. Uh, 2001, A Space Odyssey, mm -hmm. you know, That's they have one that... one of the famous ones, yeah. The bone flying through the air that turns into um, a, yeah. a missile, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, like, everything uh, about that is great. Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, probably the greatest filmmaker of our time, is, is famous for having great opening scenes. Mm. Um, but uh, the one that I'm going to talk about today is uh the dark knight okay uh i think it's something everyone's familiar with mm. uh you know you have there's you don't know it when the movie starts but you have the joker standing there on the street corner 
you don't see a man's face, but you see the kind of decrepit clown mask mm. uh, in his hand kind of dangling down by his side. And it's just that, mm. like that image of uh, the back of Heath Ledger standing mm. on a street corner. Mm. And then like and you know, yeah, the camera zooms up onto the mask and then you see, oh, here we go. And he gets in the cab and uh, or the car and like and you're off to the game. Um, there's a lot more about uh, kind of the opening few pages of it, uh, but you were going to say something. Well, I just wanted to mention that I never watched those movies when they came out. Ah. And so when Heath Ledger died, I didn't get what the big deal was because a lot oh, of people were heartbroken. I know. A lot of superhero movies are pretty not that good. Um, mm. Most common denominator, action scenes, no substance, etc. People do say this. But some of them aren't like that. Uh, that one certainly isn't. When I mm. did see it, I was like blown away. What an amazing movie. And I loved it. And I, I could totally understand why people were so heartbroken when he died. Mm. It was a very wonderful movie. An extremely quality actor. Definitely an excellent performance. Um, but in this in this movie specifically, and it, with uh, kind of Christopher Nolan in general, uh, his writing plays a, a big role in mm. his screenplays you know he's not he has a big reputation but he definitely writes for a like the screenplay is just as much of a work of art mm. as the uh as the end result mm. uh, of what you're getting so a a big thing that comes down to the first uh, couple of pages on his screenplay is actually the verbs when he's writing so like the very first line in his screenplay is burning all caps yeah. burning massive flames a dark shape emerges the bat symbol like we have that like that's that's the so kind of the title, it title like card. almost like a film noir exactly you know if you got a film noir, burning massive flames a dark shape emerging you know? yes a man reveals himself under a street yeah, light yeah. his shadow casts he's over a gun very, yeah. he's very conscious over how the whoever's going to manifest his vision gets the feeling that he's trying to convey exactly so you see like a man in a clown mask holding a smoking silenced pistol ejects a shell casing i just want to comment before that it goes um the bat symbol growing filling the screen with blackness full stop cut to daylight yeah. and what he's doing is let's create he's telling the person reading it let's create a contrast yeah he creates a huge yes. That that's one of the things that he's he's very good for is matching uh kind of like his his protagonist or or the thing that he wants us to focus on with uh, a set of scenery and uh, uh kind of things that kind of pair it with that. Like in uh in uh, following his opening film that uh, his, his debut film, we get like kind of like this innocent author person. Who, and it's all shot in black and white, mm. but um, is, is kind of innocent author uh, ends up like following people around the city to kind of like document their character. But like the he ends up meeting another guy who uh, is more kind of uh, skeevy about it. I'll just say for right now than he was. And if you haven't seen this film and you're a fan of Christopher Nolan, you should definitely watch this movie. Mm. Um, for uh he's great at like creating creating images and uh kind of like uh 
matching matching our our psychic attachment, the, the image we get in our mind with uh, the character he wants to create. Mm. Um, but in the in the in the screenplay, very much uh, focuses on verbs. So the men slide across a dizzying rooftop. Dizzying rooftop. And no one's going to read this, remember. Yeah. Like the, the, the audience of the movie aren't going to read this. He's putting it in to make sure that the impact he desires is captured. Right. Dopey fires open across a panel. Remember, because we have that scene in the beginning where like we're just zooming in on like the side mm -hmm. of a skyscraper mm -hmm. and all of a sudden a window shatters. Mm -hmm. It's like all of this comes across like customers scream, chuckles, cracks the security guard over the head like uh, cracks and he says he cracks him over the head he doesn't yeah. say hits him over the head with a blah blah he cracks so that's what he means this very that. good word choice yeah with that and like this is it's big the first page of this screenplay is a big focus mm -hmm. on 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 his choice of wording for the verbs right dopey watches the alarm ping capital letters on ping so his hand held so it's yes. really important to him that it's a ping yeah it's very and this is a common thing that people do with writing screenplays they uh They'll tend to uh, put in all caps kind of the words that they want right. the reader to focus on. Right. So when you have a lot of exciting words uh, and, and you open with an exciting scene mm -hmm. like we get in The Dark Knight, uh, for whoever's going to read this, whoever whoever it was that saw this first, um, you know, because nobody likes nobody likes reading things in Hollywood. People pay other people to read things mm -hmm. for them. So uh, when you get someone looking at it. You know, their eyes jump to scream, silent alarm, handgun, uh, carrying assault rifles. Like mm -hmm. all of that stuff is what is what your brain kind of picks up uh, before anyone even puts this together. You know that like some shit's going down. Uh, you get a great kind of image, even just from the words as they as they just like appear in the way your mind would look at like a, a scattering list of random things like your brain your eyes would jump around a page in the same way that like that wouldn't put anything together in the way that a sentence would so he's he's kind of playing this game where you get that excitement or that kind of uh tantalizing pull even before you like look at it but that's that's with once he's developed it and kind of like worked his idea. The the most important thing that I'll, I'll bring this back to again is to definitely open with an image. Everyone says uh, opening with an image uh, is the most important thing because you don't you do want. And I think we've talked about kind of when we've mentioned book openings, we've looked at like the first sentence and the first page is is as important as the first sentence. But like when you get those moments of here's a fact you've mm -hmm. probably never thought of you're going to die mm -hmm. uh that's all you really need to like hook yourself into it you're going to you're going to find that you're attached to the rest of the novel after like one one moment you know mm -hmm. in the first three seconds of the dark knight you're you're like what the hell well you already know about batman and the joker because it's just part of like a cultural consciousness so he's giving you clues to those things in the opening three seconds where you're like, oh, I know what's coming. I'm excited. Mm -hmm. He doesn't start with like Batman of the Batcave talking about. Right. Yeah. One, one, speaking of sci-fi today, I watch most of the great 
space operas. And one thing I really liked about Farscape, which um, I watched late on, they did, they, it ha, it ha, one of its innovations was they always started with an action scene and they explained what happened later. Mm. And I thought that is so great because if you watch the old Star Trek gen, Next Generation, often it's like, Captain, we're approaching a planet. Star Trek is so expositional, it yeah. blows my mind. I, yes. And I never knew about that at the time. Big but, fan of Star Trek, by the way, not, not yeah, writing right. on it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. But they do that. They set you up, right? They go, mm. Captain, we're, we're approaching a planet, and then they tell you what's up. And then you know how to contextualize what you're about to see. Farscape was innovative. It always started right in the middle of the action, and <laughs> then it unwound it yes. during the course of the episode. And I thought that was very fantastic. I thought it was an excellent, much better, 100 times better than Battlestar Galactica, which I didn't like that much. Hmm. In many ways better than Babylon 5, um, which is high praise, because Babylon 5 started the thing of plotting a space opera over five, four or five seasons. I think it was the first show to plot up, to plot over five seasons. Hmm. So, uh, um, so... Um, it's interesting you mentioned this thing about beginning mm -hmm. in an action sequence mm -hmm. because Marvel did this as well. Mm -hmm. uh, they kind of like around phase two where they like kind of found that pattern that like draws people in well enough mm -hmm. to where like, you know, like you were saying, like more lights, less content. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of you can find like I think starting with phase two in Marvel, mm -hmm. you'll find that. 90% of Marvel films open with an action sequence. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, a lot well. of movies open with action sequences, and that's pretty much ubiquitous now. But their job yeah. is to, like, create a broad appeal, and right. this is this is what they're doing, yes. But what I liked, yeah, and I, I definitely wanted to know what I was watching happening in Farscape. <laughs> you know, Marvel like, doesn't really create that kind of mystery. It's just like, whoa, <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy are fighting this, like, weird slimy monster yeah that's maybe why i don't love which is uh, great but i like... don't love most superhero movies with some exceptions because i find uh well i'm a I big just, fan of marvel i just want to I, put I, it out I, there I, 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 no i and we can talk about that on another episode and find out what's good about it because i, I want to know, I wanna know yeah, yeah marvel could be a good yeah so, so that would be interesting to me so one one movie i did like was the animated movie batman and harley quinn and it was really good. The dialogue was excellent. The characterization was excellent. The the plot could you could throw it in the bin. But because the dialogue <laughs> and the characters were so good, the end was terrible as well. Uh, boring. But because the beginning was shit, the middle was shit, and the end was but shit. It, it had so much good about it. You know, really? I, I didn't I didn't really mind. So that's it's in a way it's one of my favorite movies. I I never watch it to the end, but I just love mm. love the dialogue. I I love good dialogue. Great dialogue movie. The original 1986 Transformers movie. It doesn't have much oh, wow. dialogue in it, but the dialogue is killer. Oh, it, uh, um, uh, features Spock. Spock does the voice of Unicorn. Leonard Nimoy. Yeah. Oh, wow. Leonard Nimoy is in it. And also Orson Welles. Leonard it's Nimoy in, and Orson Welles. It's wow. an amazing movie. What a hitting film. classic. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Transformers 1986. Amazing dialogue. If you had the script, it would probably only be a few pages long. Because there's a lot, again, there's a lot of action and stuff for kids, cartoon stuff. Yeah. But the what dialogue there is absolutely incredible. And we can maybe revisit that another time. I just what rewatched it with a girlfriend, so that would be quite. Which is why it's off of my mind. Yes. So, do you want to say anything about? Because I didn't know this, but The Dark Knight is not just Ted's favorite uh -huh. opening, opening 
sequence to a movie, but actually tends to be in the greatest of all time. So I don't oh, know if you yeah, yeah, I have excellent taste then. Yeah, th- this one, this one rates it second greatest opening ever. Oh yeah, a little internet I, I list. Don't know, I don't know if you want to comment on any of the other ones. I mean, there's Just, the Lion King. Let in me there. see what do we have. Let I me, mean, the Lion King is an excellent. They, yes, they hold up. They hold up Simba. Yeah, that's a really good opening. Yes, sequence. Um, and Jaws is in there. Oh, I love Twenty Eight Days Later. Oh God, yes. I remember really liking that movie, which is a surprise that's, that's, to me because that's I been usually like horror movies. This is funny. I was watching, I was rewatching Community uh, last night mm-hmm. with uh, with the paintball episode where they like uh, where like you know Jeff kind of he goes and for those of you who haven't seen Community, uh, Dan Harmon's probably biggest you know cult fandom uh, TV show, excellent show. Uh, but in the paintball episode, uh, Jeff, like, everyone's like, there's going to be a game of paintball. And then Jeff mm-hmm. goes and takes a nap in his car. And then he wakes up and it does the 28 days later thing where, like, you go from this world of, like, you know, status quo mm-hmm. and kind of uh, mundanity. And then he wakes up from a nap and all of a sudden everything is chaos. Like, oh, he, wow. he gets out of the car. That's good. And he's alone in the world. There's trash everywhere. There's Everything's kind of turned yeah. on its head. It's been a long time since I saw it, but I really remember enjoying it. No, oh, 28 Days Later is my favorite zombie mm-hmm. movie, if not my favorite thriller of all time. I was time. very impressed by it. And I, it's yes. not in the genre of movie that I usually like. So um, one of the ones on the list is Scream. And I, I do remember, again, Scream's a horror excellent. movie that I don't... Uh, Horror is not a genre I'm typically into, but I remember thinking it was a great opening scene because it's that phone on the bed, that phone call on the bed oh, where yeah. she thinks she's flirting with someone, but then he becomes very intimidating to her. Oh yeah. So that is that is excellent. Yeah, it, so it's very it's very real as well. It pulls you into this like oh this is such a charming conversation and like ooh this is turning bad. Yeah yeah. And I'm sure there's people out there who've had similar experiences. Mm. Um, yeah. The, the theme of, of women um, being susceptible to what they thought a good seduction was a good seduction going wrong is definitely familiar. Or just being mistreated in general, like and, and having like being exposed to uh, a guy or yeah. So some advice for any guys if you're sexting or phone sexting a girl, don't intimidate them. Right, you're never gonna get laid. So, and but I mean, nice there period. is a mystery for <laughs> Yes, yeah. Don't be a serial killer. There's something weird about the the fascination that uh, this like spooky, intimidating guy ha- is almost like a trope of in fiction, but somehow sexual, somehow sexy, and from and as a familiar character, an exaggeration of something. Yes. That is somehow found in the real world. That happens a lot in uh, slashers as well, mm. as you get this kind of, like, this this tie-in of, like, sexual themes with, like, just blood, gore, like, violence, like, the, you know, mm. the, the, the character that always goes for uh, getting laid is always the one that dies first. Right. You know, like, uh, that, that used to be a big trope in the 80s. Um, but... Uh, Scream kind of Scream kind of plays on that. It 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 created that That's like good. yeah. I liked how it made fun of the genre as well. Yeah, it was it was famous for being like post horror because mm-hmm. right. it was still it's still like a slap in the same way that post punk was like 
we're not the Sex Pistols, but we're not quite pop either. Like it had an element of not another teen movie to it, where it was like, here are the tropes of the horror movie, and we are going to make fun of them and reveal them. Yeah. But um, yeah, I mean. But its opening w- uh, worked in that it it encapsulated this idea and the theme that we've been talking about. Uh, to call back to our opening, mm-hmm. uh, it encapsulated this idea of of what they were going to bring you. Like this is. Like, it showed you the line, the through line that all other slashes and horror flicks had been working on up until this point. Mm-hmm. And it demonstrated the way it was going to change them. Like, how how it gave you the same idea that you would expect from a regular horror movie, but showed you the ways where it was going to kind of work off of your expectations in order to create something new. Uh, and that's what a that's part of what a good opening does. Uh, it it kind of it throws you off balance in a good way. It, because that's what's going to keep you keep re- you reading. reading or watching. Yeah. What it's going to do is you've got certain expectations, and we share a context. Me, the writer, and you share some knowledge. Otherwise, we wouldn't even be able to talk to each other within that context. Here's a thing that should be interesting to you. Yeah. Uh, in such a way that like. This is the experience you had with the book you were talking about, wasn't it? Didn't yeah. it? Didn't it just like impact you so so firmly? Yeah. So firmly. Not only that, I was like, I need to buy this book, but I was like questioning whether my context was whether I'd wasted That's time right. reading a lot of books that you, I read. You had you it called into question everything you had ever read. That's beforehand. why I wanted to do this episode. But before <laughs> we go on to that, I'm going to speak a bit about why I opened my book, Universal Basic Income For and Against, the way I did. And I was going to skip the uh, straight onto the preface, but I realized there was a dedication in the inside, and even that is deliberate. Ah. It says, dedicated to the end of poverty, Ooh. moral, spiritual, material. Ah. And I guess the reason why I wrote that is That's because... Very lovely. Thank you. Yeah. Because I'm a libertarian and people have the... And it's a libertarian book. People have the stereotype as libertarians hate the poor, right? <laughs> so it's like, well, here's a bunch of libertarian policies that would be really good for the poor, and I'm aiming at the end of poverty. Yes. And the material one is important, but I also said moral and spiritual, because there's a certain way of looking at morality within libertarianism, and also, this, it's you can have everything, you can have all the material stuff, but if you don't feel good, if you're not enriched, if you're um, if the state is subsidizing your computer game addiction and, and making you worse rather than better, making your not only your life worse but your death worse, um, then that's a, a spiritual thing as well. It, it gives you a lot of, uh, I think, that because that's the first time I've heard that mm-hmm. dedication that right. you've, you've told that to me. Uh, but I think hearing it just, it just the reaction, my reaction to it, it, it gave your book so much more gravitas oh, going into it, I, I felt. That it's like, you. oh, this is this is about more than than what I assume a, a libertarian argument would be about. Okay, thank yes, you. Yes. And, and what it means is, wherever you are on the political spectrum, if this is what you want, the end of poverty, then, then we share some values. Excellent. Yes. Even if you're, even if you disagree with my politics. Very good. So, so let's hear, let's hear your, the your preface opinion. and why I did it this way. So, thank you for taking the time to read my short book. 
This is this is the opening of his book, by the way. Perhaps you should read it. Should, do you want me to read it? How, sure. where, where, where should I read it until? I, I think maybe... Just the first paragraph? Just the first paragraph. Okay. Um, Thank you for taking the time to read my short book. Texts that you can read in a couple hours are all the rage these days, so I've tried to keep it tight for you. At average speed, you can kill it in one sitting if you're persistent. I suggest you read it once or twice, then come back to it as a reference manual whenever you get embroiled in a Facebook debate or a YouTube comment fight. Excellent. In parentheses, it's good to have some copy and paste material, right? Save your time and mental health. You can download the PDF of the first edition from... Here's the website. Yeah. Uh, for now, get yourself a hot drink and enjoy. Lovely. Thank you. That's quite lovely. Thanks. Yeah. So I wrote it like this to be like, okay, I know like texts that you can read in a couple of hours are all the rage these days, so I've tried to keep it tight for you. In other words, I don't want to freaking overload you. Like just mm. and then and then it said it's you, very can empathetic, it, yeah. you can even read it all at once. So what what I was wanting to say was have a read of it. And then, because this started off as a PDF, which was shorter than the original book, and then I added some essays and following edition. You'd now probably not be able to read it in one sitting, uh, but you could if you were really persistent. Yeah, but the idea I'm a was, bit of a slow reader. If, back in these days, we were arguing. People were still arguing a lot on Facebook, but so it was like the same arguments come up again and again. I know. So here you are. You can basically copy and paste this, but I thought. So I thought I'd share a joke with people. And it's just like, for now, get yourself a hot drink and enjoy. So mm. then I talked a bit about... That's lovely. That's like, that's very calming. Anyway, go on. Thank you. And then I said, uh, the book was a, a, based on a talk I made. And I said, and I've, I've added material from other articles I've written concerning poverty, reduction, living standards, automation, and the role of government. So what, what I'm, I'm doing the classic, tell them what you're going to tell them tell him then tell him what you told him but i i like this um, i tell said cubed i said i stitched it all together with plenty of new research and writing if i were a classic rock band this would be like the reunion tour where i play all the greatest hits from my famous album throw in some lesser known tunes to keep the diehards happy yeah. and sneak in the latest material hoping that no one throws a bottle at me there you go however yeah. though more conversational Sorry, though more controversial, yeah. you won't be groaning and lament at the new stuff. It is quite conversational. Though. Yeah, so I, I, I've always been complicated message for my conversational style, and I want to write as though I'm chatting to you. And that's exactly what I say in the intro, which is... So you had a preface and then an intro. Yeah, well, no, no, this in the rest of the preface, Okay. where I say basically... What I'm doing is writing to you in a chatty style, but while this isn't common today, it's not new. The earliest originators of economics, from Adam Smith through to who I say is my hero, Frederick Bastiat, they wrote as simply as possible. No no complicated maths, no things. Mm. So I said... We discussed this as well. So I just said that really, here I said... I've tried to keep the tone casual while being rigorous in my arguments and evidence and maintaining intellectual integrity. The voice may be more conversational than an academic work, but the material presented is not, in inverted commas, light. This is not a work of pop economics and you're not faking it. Yeah. 
if you read this book rather than something from Oxford University Press or what, whatever, you're getting the real stuff. I would never patronize you. I say, I believe the mo even the most complex concepts in economics can be made readily understandable to the kind of person who would be interested in reading about them if only they are communicated in simple, interesting, and even passionate manner. So I think that's important because when people are handed a conversational mm -hmm. book, they often undervalue uh, how analytical it might still be. So I say this is necessary if we're ever re to redeem this field for it from its characterization as the dismal science, which some people call economics, huh. the dismal science. That's, I can understand that. So that's, um, I tell you that I'm trying to do that. I'm telling you that my aim is to be chatty. My aim is to be conversational. That's a good, that is a good preface to, to kind of outline your voice before going into it. Because I think with a lot of economic texts, especially with uh, the people kind of in your uh, sphere mm -hmm. of uh, authorship, uh, I think they expect a lot of things to be like heavily academic and mm -hmm. like very, very wordy and heavy handed. And I wanted the opposite. I want, I want everyone to see how interesting and elegant this mm -hmm. is. The reason why I'm writing about it is I'm interested in it. Because I'm interested in it, I think there's something interesting about it that you might be interested in. So I tried to capture that. Yeah, the and communicating it in plain language is uh, certainly what you've done there. Thank you. Yeah, so that was very good. Uh, is this? Well, you have to say that because you're the co-host, and if you said it was. I good. do. What I really think about it. Come, come to my other podcast. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah right. What you have to do is get a Patreon subscription to go yes. and stuff, and then. And then I'll yeah. show you, yeah. Show a snowball. We'll tell you what an utter piece of crap you think yes. I am as a writer. Blue Snowballs, Constantly Complaining Podcast. I <laughs> love it. Yeah, this is the, <laughs> the dirty side to go write yourself. So now, the moment you've all been waiting for. Oh my. The opening page, or at least some of it, of The Earl King by Michael Tourneur. Ja January 3, 1938. You're an ogre. Rachel used to say to me sometimes. An ogre? A fabulous monster emerging from the mists of time? Well, yes. I do think there's something magical about me. I do think there's a secret collusion deep down connecting what happens to me with what happens in general and enabling my particular history to bend the course of things in its own direction. And I do believe that I issued from the mist of time. <laughs> I've always been shocked at the frivolous way people agonize about what's going to happen to them after they die, and they don't give a damn about what happened to them before they were born. The heretofore is just as important as the hereafter, especially as it probably holds the key to it. As for me, I was already there a thousand, a hundred thousand years ago, when the earth was still only a ball of fire spinning round in a helium sky, the soul that lit it and made it spin was mine. What's more, the dizzying antiquity of my origins explains my supernatural power. I, I want to know what a supernatural power is. Certainly. Being and I have travelled side by side so long, we're such old companions, that while we may not be especially fond of one another, mm. by dint of being together almost since the world began, we understand one another and can't refuse each other anything. 
Oh, wow. I mean, that I just don't know how anyone could top that. The literary style, the allegory, the, the spinning it out and why, and the, the cosmicness of it. His, uh, and everyone has a phenomenon a little bit like that of being so in his head, but mm -hmm. he's so in his head, he feels like, you know, he's the very fabric of the universe. Yeah, that's, uh, that's probably why you like it so much, because mm. it reflects how you feel about yourself. Yeah, I, I never thought of that. <laughs> well, I, no. I, 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 I do, yeah, I, I guess it is in some way relatable. Cause no, I'm just, I'm just joking. But but I yeah, and that, an ogre, like his, yeah. you, you assume that this is his ex-girlfriend, and you're right. Rachel used to say, you're an ogre, Rachel said, used to be sometimes. An mm. ogre? Yeah. an ogre. You know, and you expect him goes, to take it as an insult, but, but then he and he did at first, yeah. an ogre. Yeah. But then he starts to think about oh, it. Oh no! Well, wait a minute. What is an ogre? I'm actually he, spectacular. He a fabulous mon monster emerging in the midst of time. Well, I do think there's something magical about me. And yes. and, and and then he goes and as for issuing the from the mystic, wait a minute. Mm -hmm. I kind of feel like I did. So it's kind of wonderful. And uh, oh, I yeah. just read a little bit more of it. So. As for being a monster, to begin with, what is a monster? Etymology has a bit of a shock up its sleeve there. Monster comes from monstrar, to show. A monster is something which is shown, pointed at, exhibited at fairs and so on. And the more monstrous a creature is, the more it is to be exhibited. That makes my hair stand on end. I can't live except in obscurity. And I'm sure I only live at all through a misunderstanding because the mass of my fellow creatures don't know I'm there. And now you're getting set up for something. Cause, this, cause so, so this is like, okay. Because he's, he's saying, wait a minute, like, oh, the mass of my fellow creatures don't know I'm there. Yes. In other words, you're now going to find out that he's someone who likes to keep to himself and what whatever. I find this great because it expands on this idea of of monster as well in such a way that like it, it unfurls the idea. Yeah. Like you start with ogre, you get something that's fantastic in every sense of the word, and then you go to uh, monster and the etymology of monster, uh, which yeah, uh, very clearly hints at mm. like the character and the kind mm. of person we're going to mm -hmm. be experiencing here. Mm -hmm. And and you get you get this like nice bit and this ugly bit at the same time, yeah. which is uh, which is great for the etymology mm. uh, and the yeah, way yeah, he, yeah. The way he puts he, it is yeah, very he good. Go, yeah, he goes to that and says, "Well, let's let's unfold this little thing here, shall we? Because I I think that the etymology is important. So I'm going to do a little bit of an exposition yeah. about how what you know that girl she obviously felt." somehow jilted by him yeah. whether it was the way he behaved around the house or the way he made love to her or whatever she was like oh you're an ogre mm. but the thing is he couldn't let it go it's like chewing up in it's his still head. stuck in his mind regardless yeah. of how so how great he feels he thought about, about it. it and thought about it and thought about it and said well actually if you look at what an ogre is i'm not too affronted by that anymore because mm. i think it actually says a lot about me <laughs> so that is the most memorable opening for a book that I have ever read, and hmm. I was I was so impressed by it on every on every level. The setting me up to want to read the book, the use of language, the exposition, and the, the conceptual, the fact that I know that this character is an outsider, an overthinker, uh, someone who, um, you know, 
has yeah. like has has slighted it's, people in the past. Privately thinks it's it's private, but privately thinks there's something important about him. That too. That, mm -hmm. um, that's mm -hmm. very excellent mm -hmm. about the character. So if you want your text to emerge from the mists of time. You better get your ass off this podcast and, and go, go write, write yourself. yourself. Damn, that was good. <laughs>